Welcome to the Southbank Centre podcast. I'm Ted Hodgkinson, Senior Programmer for Literature and Spoken Word. Today, we're bringing you some of our best bits from 2017's London Literature Festival. This year's festival encompasses the 50th anniversary of Poetry International, an expanded children's programme, Young Adult Literature Weekender, and explores how literature and poetry can remind us of our shared humanity in a world on the brink. So sit back and listen to some of the biggest and most inspiring writers from around the globe, including Philip Bullman, Carlo Vignalskard, Claudia Rankin, and other major speakers, including Tom Hanks. A warm welcome to Southbank Centre's Royal Festival Hall, the finale of our literature programme. In a season that has seen many of the most anticipated literary events of the year take place on this very stage, you're in for a really special treat this evening. One of our most masterful, playful, and prodigious writers, drawing you into the world of his fictional creations. In a moment, William Boyd will take to this stage to take you on a unique journey through his life as a creator of many fictions. What follows promises to be a one-off chance to explore the Hall of Mirrors world of a singular imagination and to see the author trace the shadowy line between fiction and reality. And I'm pleased to say that William Boyd, the real one, is here now to present it. So ladies and gentlemen, please could you help me in welcoming to the stage William Boyd. Thank you. everyone. Uh, I know what you're thinking. Middle-aged novelist uses iconic rock song to <laughs> juice up, as they say in Hollywood, uh, a literary evening. But that's not actually very fair. There is uh, several good reasons why that song, which some of you will recognize as Badge by Cream, has a kind of bearing on my work and life. In 1969, I was in the first year of the sixth form, and I'd just done my art A-level, which I passed with a grade A, and I thought, I know, I'm going to be an artist. At that age, 17 years old, you're sort of perplexed about the looming prospect of adulthood in front of you, and wondering what the hell you're going to do with the three score years and 10 you may be lucky enough to have allotted. And for some reason, I, I didn't come from a family of artists. I decided I wanted to be an artist, maybe because I knew I couldn't hold down a proper job, and so I needed that excuse. But I wanted to be a painter initially, um, because of A-level art. I suggested to my father that I might be able to go to art school, parental hand, was held up immediately, dream on was the message, and so I, I swerved to literature. But it was certainly around that time, 17 or 18, that I thought, how, how do I formulate this particular ambition? How do I live out this strange dream of being an artist that I had? And I didn't have a clue, to be honest. And so, in a way, the development of my writing persona and the development of my career was a process of education. And, aptly enough, 
it began with short stories. The first fictions I wrote were short stories because you could do them quickly. If they went terribly wrong, you hadn't wasted much time. And also, again, in those days, there was a kind of market for short stories. I don't think the taste has ever gone away amongst readers. Readers love short stories, I think, but they're quite difficult things to publish, and so publishers are reluctant, even though some of our greatest ever writers have made their names and reputations through the medium of the short form. But for me, as a young student, writing short stories seemed to be the best way to advance myself and see what happened. Luckily for me, I went to a university where, again, this is commonplace now, but at the time was very unusual. Um, they had a, a professor of creative writing or a visiting writer, a now forgotten Scottish poet called George Bruce. And um, George Bruce, in his wisdom, decided to hold a short story competition for all people who'd arrived at Glasgow University reading first-year English. And I entered it, and I won it. It's that easy, I thought. Um, but uh, it was hugely important. When you're starting out, you need these moments of encouragement just to convince yourself that you're, you're not a total fantasist. And this short story I wrote, which is very autobiographical, about my gap year, before there were gap years in, in Nice, it was called Reveries of an Early Morning Riser. It's never been published and it will never see the light of day, but luckily for me it won the first year English short story prize and that set me off on my route. So I started writing, I wrote a novel again, got it out of my system. It was called Is That All There Is? Taken from a Peggy Lee song. Again, highly autobiographical. When you're a young writer, you think you're the most fascinating subject on earth and, and the rest of the world really should have the chance to learn all about you. But I think it's good to write, it's good to have written it and then you, you put it away in a bottom drawer and lock it. So I got it out of my system. And then I was following a kind of academic career because, once again, I had no idea how you made your way as a novelist, how you even began to earn a living as a, as a novelist. I went to Oxford to do a PhD, but it was really an excuse to write because you had all this free time and you should have been researching, what was the title of my thesis, yes, philosophical dimensions of Percy Bysshe Shelley's poetry and prose, dry as dust, another one that's never seen the light of day. Um, I started writing and sending off short stories to magazines. There, were, there was quite a, an appetite for them then. BBC had a, a program on called Morning Story. Five days a week, 52 weeks a year, there was a kind of ravening more for short fiction. They had to be 2,300 words long, because that's how long a 15-minute short story is on the radio. So I wrote a lot of 2,300-word short stories and sent them in, and Julie got them published here and there. I had lots of rejection slips as well. I sent them off to little magazines, I sent them off to women's magazines. There was quite a, 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 quite a large number of places where you could be published in those. I was published in Punch, published in Mayfair, shock horror. Um, but uh, that was my biggest check, 300 pounds, um, and it was all good grist to the mill. At the same time, I was writing novels. Um, I'd 
parked um, is that all there is? And then I wrote a very experimental novel called Against the Day, which was set in Nigeria during the Nigerian Civil War, which I had sort of lived through as a, as a teenager and been profoundly affected by. And then I wrote a thriller, I was getting a bit desperate at this stage, um, called True Love at 29. I realized my greatest success was happening with short stories. And I published about, let's say, over a period of four or five years, nine or ten short stories in various little magazines or other magazines or on the radio. And I thought, I've got a collection here. So I assembled them. And this is another good tip. I didn't just send them to one publisher, I sent them to two publishers. Two publishers uh, who published short story collections, Hamish Hamilton and Jonathan Cape. And I sent these stories to the managing director of each company. The um, managing director of Hamish Hamilton, a man called Christopher Sinclair Stevenson, wrote back to me and said he was very interested in my short stories, but actually he'd prefer to publish a novel first. I wrote back and said, I've written a novel, um, but I hadn't written a novel. Um, I said, the manuscript's in shocking condition, and I really need to retype it and, and rethink it. He said, fine. So I borrowed some money from my mother. I got a, a small grant from the Southern Arts Literary Association, and I sat down and in a kind of white heat of mendacity and, and energy, wrote the novel A Good Man in Africa in about three months. It was all there in my head. I just needed that tap to be turned for it to pour forth. And um, so I wrote the novel, sent it in, and Christopher Sinclair Stevenson, bless him, said he liked it and he wanted to publish the novel first, and then six months later he'd published my collection of short stories. It wasn't by any means an, an overnight success. I'd been writing away for many years, um, having moderate occasional successes, but suddenly I had two books published and I seemed I was on my way. I'm going to read two very short stories at some stage this evening. And the first one, oh, they're both from this new collection. The um, collection's called The Dreams of Bethany Melmoth, and in this collection, there are actually 10 stories which I've stitched together into a kind of novella that follow this girl, Bethany Melmoth, who's 22, 23, living in London today, over the course of about a year and a half. There are two Christmases in, in this segment of her, her life. This story was the very first one I wrote, and it's very short, and I wrote it for a, a very interesting free sheet called Notes from the Underground in 2007 that was given out free to tube travelers. The request was for something under a thousand words. For some reason, I decided to write this story about Bethany Melmoth, and the character of Bethany seized me thereafter. Since then, every time somebody asks me to write a short story, I think, well, I, I'll write another Bethany story. And slowly but surely, I've, I've be, been documenting her, her life. She's one of these girls who is sort of drifting, doesn't know what she wants to be or become, and so she's trying out various jobs and roles to see how they fit her. 
Anyway, here's the first Bethany story, and it gives you a flavor of, of the other, other nine. The dreams of Bethany Melmoth. Bethany can't take much more of Bob Dylan. Her boyfriend, Sholto, listens endlessly to Dylan tracks while simultaneously watching 24-hour rolling news, Sky News or CNN or BBC News 24, with the sound turned completely down. He flicks between these silent channels looking for footage of unspooling news events. He seems to have every track Dylan ever released, and bootleg also, tracks that he plays at just above tolerable volume, the music score to his mute images of large and small wars, sporting triumphs or humiliations, press conferences, celebrity appearances, and natural disaster after natural disaster. He claims it is an endlessly variable, unique 365-day movie, a new art form that he has invented, available to anyone with a source of music and a television. A little goes a long way, Bethany thinks, as she pulls on her coat and leaves a reverberating flat. Sholto is watching scenes of cows in a blizzard in the north of England to the sounds of like a rolling stone. It's cold outside and a thin, sleety rain is falling. She walks fast to her usual sushi bar in Meard Street and orders a scalloped sushi and the tuna sashimi and a glass of Thames water. She eats sushi all year round, even in winter. No cholesterol in rice, and the otherworldly spooky taste of raw fish somehow kills the urge for anything else. There is a young English girl wearing a kind of black forage cap, working with the other Japanese chefs in the luminous steel kitchen. She's severe and unsmiling with dense, dark eyebrows. Suddenly, Bethany sees her future. She, too, will become a sushi chef and prepare beautiful, clean, healthy food and open a sushi bar in London. After her lunch, as she leaves the restaurant, she sees the English girl chef on a cigarette break, huddling out of the drizzle in the meager shelter of the back door. Bethany takes out a cigarette and asks her for a light. They smoke and talk. How long does it take to become a sushi chef? There's a two-year apprenticeship, the girl with the eyebrows says. Cool, Bethany says. Do you have to go to Japan? If you're serious about it. Even better, Bethany thinks, pondering her new life in Tokyo. It would be warm in Tokyo, wouldn't it? She considers, liking the idea of some city warmth. What exactly do you have to do, she says. Well, the girl chef says, for the first two years, all you do is watch. Watch? Yes, you simply stand and watch a sushi master at work, and then, after two years of watching, they give you a knife and let you begin to cut fish. Bethany goes back to the flat. Bloody freezing outside, she calls, noticing that Sholto has moved off the sofa and onto the floor. He's watching images of Bangladeshi Air Force personnel pushing sacks of rice out of a hovering helicopter to swarming flood victims below. He doesn't reply. Bob Dylan is singing, It's all over now, baby blue. That gives you a flavor of Bethany's life, and she moves on through various other jobs and professions. But I think you'll, you'll see from that, and those of you who've read my other novels, that basically I'm a realistic novelist. I think if I was a painter, I would say I was a figurative painter. I want to write real novels about real people. And so my credo is very simple, that the key factor in fiction 
is to make your readers believe in the truth of your story. They must believe that what they are reading actually happened. Seems very simple, but actually thereby hangs a whole lot of other business. Because if you want to write something real, and if you want readers to believe that what you're writing is real, you can't go to the stereotype cupboard. We're all very complex, and our lives are highly different and variegated. So it seems to me that in order to reflect those complex lives, you can't just use stereotypes of narrative or stereotypes of character. Everybody's done that, and everybody recognizes it, and it ceases to have any bearing or reality on, on the lives we lead. Of all the art forms available to us, the one that does the business of being human better than any others is the novel. You can enter the heads of other people. That is, explains the enduring power of the novel, because if we, we go to it to find answers to the thorny questions about our lives, the mystery of human beings is unspooled in novels, and um, I think that, for me, explains why people keep reading novels, and also why you, the novelist, have a duty to make them as real as possible. And I look back now at my uh, novel writing career, one of the things I've done, and there was not a plan, but I think it's stimulated by this impulse, is to write what I've called whole-life novels. Four of the novels I've written are what you could categorize as whole-life novels, cradle to grave. And why did I set out to do that? Because it's quite unusual to write a whole-life novel. I started with this novel called The New Confessions. So you start when the central character, John James Todd, is born, and you end the novel when he's an old man in his, in his late 70s. You travel through his life. I did it because I wanted to give the reader all the information about this character. And when I had finished, I realized that I had taken the autobiographical form, because it's written in the first person as if he's telling you his story. And of course, it's very unreliable. Anybody telling you their life story is going to leave stuff out and embellish and enhance and so on. But you, the reader, are able to, to read between the lines and see where John James Todd is being less than truthful. I decided for my next whole life novel to write it as an intimate journal, and this was Any Human Heart. Journals, I believe, are the best literary form to capture the, the mystery and the, the bafflement and the strangeness of everybody's life. Because the journal is not written with benefit of hindsight. And the journal is written in that very sort of human state of ignorance about what lies ahead. And so for me, it seems to be the most authentic way of writing about a human life. But of course, when you write a novel as a series of journals, it becomes completely inauthentic because I know exactly what's going to happen the day after tomorrow, and I know exactly how Logan Mount Stewart, in this case, is going to wind up. But you have to make it seem as random and as aleatory 
as the kind of journal we would all write if we do write journals. Any Human Heart became the, the next whole life novel that I attempted. Though there was a slight diversion into a very, very short whole life, the sad short life of the American painter Nat Tate. My third and possibly my final whole life novel was stimulated by the thought, having written about these three men, John James Todd, Nat Tate, and Logan Mount Stewart, I really should try and write about a woman. I invented this woman photographer, and I decided to use photographs in my novel to illustrate her life. Um, her name is, was, is, is, was uh, Amory Clay, and um, I thought that photographs in novels are quite common. Virginia Woolf used photographs in novels. It was rather wonderful to take these anonymous photographs, which I bought online or in junk shops or car boot sales, and give them a context in Amory's life. It's just something that is stimulated, I think, by this idea to make fiction seem absolutely as real as possible. Um, and in the course of doing that, I often bring real people into the fiction or real historical events, again, to fulfill the ambitions of my credo. There's another side to my writing life, which is to do with films and television. One of the strange things that happened to me over the, my film writing career was that I have got to know and work with three actors who played the role of James Bond. The first one was Sean Connery in the film of my first novel, A Good Man in Africa. And he was playing a dour Scottish doctor called Dr. Murray. We shot it in, in South Africa. And then, shortly after that, the same director, Bruce Beresford, came to me and said he wanted to make a film of a, a novel set in Nigeria called Mr. Johnson uh, by an Irish writer called Joyce Carey. I had grown up, uh, born in Ghana and grown up in Ghana and Nigeria, so I knew West Africa extremely well, and I'd actually written an introduction to Mr. Johnson. It's the story of a, a, an African clerk in a remote province of Nigeria and his relationship with the district commissioner. And the district commissioner was played by Pierce Brosnan. Before Brosnan became Bond, he'd just come out of a television series that some of you will remember called Remington Steel. So that was two Bonds under my belt. And I decided I wanted to direct a film about the First World War, which is one of my obsessive interests, which is about the two days before the Battle of the Somme begins. So it's not about fighting, it's about very young men waiting to go into battle and the kind of banter and bickering that goes on, the odd horrible thing, of course, and a lot of humor as well. But it's, it's an attempt to show um, the reality of that Kitchener's army. And one of the stipulations I made was that there, sh there should be no stars in it at all. I didn't want any famous actors because I didn't want anybody's face to um, get in the way of this simple message that I was trying to portray again and attempt to show the reality of life in the trenches. And in the film, there was a sergeant figure. And I saw, in the course of casting it, about 120 young actors. I mean, some of them were very young. Some of them were still at school, because I wanted sort of baby faces as well. 
So I, I cast um, the 17-year-old Ben Wishaw, for example. The sergeant figure, I cast this actor who I didn't really know called Daniel Craig as the, as the kind of center of, around which this strange platoon of uh, young men revolve. Ian Fleming is somebody I've been very interested in, partly as a type of Englishman. And I've written quite a few articles about Ian Fleming. Fleming appears as a character in Any Human Heart and interacts with Logan Mount Stewart, gets, gets him a job as a spy, etc., etc. But um, the combination of three bonds, as it were, plus Ian Fleming, is, I think, the the only explanation for the fact that I was then asked to write a James Bond novel. It almost seemed in my destiny. It, I said yes instantly. And I tackled it in exactly the way as I ta would have tackled any novel, in that I did a massive amount of research. And I reread all of Fleming's Bond novels and short stories in chronological order, taking notes. And it's fascinating what information was revealed in that. Bond isn't English. He's half Swiss, half Scottish. He's frightened of flying. Fleming, who was a massive boozer, gave Bond all his drinking habits. There's a wonderful line in one of the novels, which is, Bond knew that the 13th large whiskey had been a mistake. <laughs> um, it was really fascinating to take all these odd facts that Fleming's novel threw up. For example, there are five references to Bond's World War II experiences in combat and put them in the novel and um, try to recreate an older Bond. He's 45, he's sent to Africa on a mission. Other fictions emerged in the course of writing. I've referred to Nat Tate. He, um, it, it, it arose again um, by happenstance, I was joined the board of an art magazine called Modern Painters. And at one of our board meetings, the editor said, how can we get fiction into a serious art quarterly? And I stuck up my hand and said, why don't I invent a painter? Karen Wright, the editor, said, yes, good idea, invent a painter. Another board member was just appointed at the same time as me, was the one and only David Bowie. He and I, because we both joined at the same time, sat beside each other at editorial board meetings, and in the, in the slightly bizarre way, we got to know each other. When I had invented this painter, Nat Tate, who's American, died in 1960, committed suicide, jumped off the Staten Island ferry, body never recovered. Why don't we publish it as a little book? We set about creating this beautiful little monograph. I wanted to invent this life of a forgotten painter in New York. And I fleshed it out with, again, anonymous photographs. And I wrote, wrote this story. And in the case of Nat Tate, who was quite a good artist, but had a rich stepfather um, who subsidized him. And he had the chance to travel to France in 1960, where he met Picasso and Georges Braque. This encounter with two geniuses, two prodigious, incredibly talented, driven artists made him look at his own work, and it was bad. 
So he had a kind of nervous breakdown. He was drinking rather a lot as well. And so he gathered up all the work he could. He went to people who'd bought it, said he wanted to rework it. He gathered up all his work and he burnt it. That's why none of you have ever heard of Nat Tate, because there's, the, there's very little work in, in the world. In the course of this story, I realized that I had all the facts right and where he went to art school, etc. But, you know, a hoax is quite a tricky thing to pull off. People would be reading it, I thought, and they'd just begin to suspect it wasn't quite right, so I needed something to draw them up short. And so I went to two friends of mine. I went to Gore Vidal, the American novelist who I'd got to know, and I said to Gore, would you reminisce about meeting Nat Tate in, uh, in Manhattan? Gore sent me a letter which went, he was a good-looking boy, but he drank too much. He had an affair with Peggy Guggenheim, uh, etc., etc. Then I went to another friend of mine, a very eminent art critic and the biographer of Picasso, John Richardson. He's nearly at the end of his massive biography of Picasso. And I said to John, John, would you remember introducing Nat Tate to Picasso at your house in Avignon in 1960? And so he did. Nat Tate was very quiet at the dinner. His father did most of the talking. And you think, well, you know, if Gore Vidal and John Richardson remember meeting Nat Tate, surely he must have existed. The book was published, and Bowie said, let's have a party and launch the book in, in Manhattan. I said, fantastic. My idea of a slow burn was disappearing at this stage. And so Bowie, who knew everybody, uh, knew the artist Jeff Koons, and Bowie said to Koons, can we launch Nat Tate in your studio? And Koons said, of course, my pleasure. So this great party was assembled and invitations went out April the 1st, <laughs> 19, 1998. You know, everybody was there. You know. And at this party, David Bowie presented the story of Nat. January the 8th, it seems, is not only my birthday, but also the fateful day when the painter Nat Tate contrived to round up and burn almost his entire output. Four days later, he jumped to his death from the Staten Island Ferry, thereby completing the ragged circle of his life's events. Boyd's description of Tate's working procedure is so vivid that it convinces me that the small oil I picked up on Prince Street New York, in the late 60s, must indeed be one of the lost third panel triptychs. <laughs> this was read out deadpan, but amongst the conspirators was an English journalist, the art critic of the independent magazine called David Lister. During this party at Jeff Koons' studio, he went around with a notebook and a tape recorder asking people about Nat Tate. Of course, people being people, they, they dug a hole for themselves and, and jumped in it. Um, isn't it a tragedy how he died so young? Um, think what might have become of him. I, I remember seeing his show in Philadelphia and, you know, so on and so forth. So the thing was that the following week, on April the 7th, we were going to do exactly the same in London. We had a very fashionable restaurant booked. I had given interviews to eminent journalists with my fingers crossed behind my back, explaining how I had 
and discovered this forgotten painter, but David Lister felt he had too big a story, and so he blew it wide open two days before the London launch. On the front page of the Independent newspaper, English novelist hoaxes Manhattan art world. What it showed me was that people love a hoax, particularly if you're hoaxing pretentious, self-important people. <laughs> and um, so it just blew up. All the English journalists were able to say, yes, I thought there was something fishy about that, <laughs> uh, and, and, and remove the egg from their face. Jeremy Paxman interviewed me on Newsnight, I remember, and he said, these are awful drawings. How could anybody be taken in? Because I'd done the drawings, so I... So, um, <laughs> I, um, I, I vehemently disputed that. We made, we've made three television documentaries about Nat Tate. Um, <laughs> Nat Tate has been published in French, Spanish, and German to enormous coverage. I own several Nat Tates, and uh, I've had to lend them to an, an exhibition in Berlin. Um, <laughs> It's gone on and on and on. And I was beginning to think, I was beginning to feel like, you know, Victor Frankenstein, actually, that my monster up there was beginning to take over. And I had ceased to have any control over this fiction I'd created about this non-existent American painter. It, it came to me, I was sitting in a, a very fashionable art gallery in, in Berlin, being interviewed on stage by the editor of a very highbrow serious art magazine behind me. this enormous projection of Nat Tate at, at my back. And there I was sitting on stage talking about, you know, fiction and Bowie and, uh, and so on. I, and I thought, I've got to get closure. I've got to somehow drive a stake through the heart of, of Nat Tate. So I thought, what, can I, what could I possibly do that would kind of bring this story full circle. And I thought, what I'll do is I'll sell a Nat Tate at auction. Fake artist, fake art, real money. I did a little drawing of Nat Tate, little Nat Tate. He, he used to draw lots of bridges. Um, that was his thing. Um, he did about 250 drawings of bridges, um, but there were only about 12 or 13 in existence uh, because he destroyed them all. And this is bridge number 114. Uh, and you can see it's his distinctive signature. This is as close as we'll ever get to the, the person that was Nat Tate. So I did this drawing. It's only about slightly bigger than a postcard. And we put it into Sotheby's modern British sale. Its estimate was, I think, three to four thousand pounds. Bidding was fierce. It was very odd standing at the back of the room. I began to doubt if I was going to achieve any closure at all, in fact. But anyway, it was an exciting moment. There was my little drawing of Nat Tate, and people saying, you know, 5,000, 5,500, 6,000, so, so on and so forth. And eventually, the final bid came in, 7,500 pounds. Didn't come to me, you'll be glad here. It was going to the Artist General Benevolent Institution, a very good charity. So I made nothing financially from, from the sale of Nat Tate. But the bidder was anonymous. Because there are so few Nat Tates in the world, um, I, I do find that I give them to people as, as presents when they move house or get married or something. Because there are so few Nat Tates in the world, I'm very keen to know where they are, you know, and um, 
in case somebody tries to forge one or something like that. Uh, but, so I said to the Sotheby's people, you've got to tell me who the anonymous buyer is of this Nat Tate, bridge number 114. They said, well, we can't do that. It breaks all our rules, because if they, they knew that, that anonymous buyers were given out, the names were given out, it would be the end of the trust between auctioneer and bidder. Because I knew them well, I asked them to ask this person who, it was, who had bought if they would allow me secretly to know who had bought the Nat Tate. The most amazing thing was they said, yes, we, he, he has agreed to... And, in fact, it was Ant of Ant and Deck fame. <laughs> and, of course, Ant is an anagram of Nat. Um, in a way, it couldn't have been more apt <laughs> either. But it turns out that Ant McPartlin is a great fan of my novels, and he was in Australia. It must be the end of the year, actually. He was in Australia, and he bid over the phone. He is now the, the proud owner of it. But that, in a way, is one of my many fictions that got completely out of hand. I think it will torment me for, for the rest of my days, one way or another. My belief is that the key factor in fiction is to make your readers believe in the truth of your story. They must believe that what they are reading actually happened. Any means to this end is acceptable. <laughs> as long as it works. And it clearly did in the case of Nat Tate. Anyway, thank you very much, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. To hear more podcasts from the festival, listen and subscribe to Southbank Centre Podcasts on iTunes or soundcloud.com forward slash Southbank Centre.